Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. I want to start out with a little bit of a pop quiz for you. Uh-oh. In front of me... <laughs> In front of me, I have the lyrics of Under the Sea, and I want to see if you can still do the rap verse, like the verse with all the crazy rhymes. The way he can play that that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, let me think. The way he can play, the the lings on the strings, the sprout. Shoot. It's crazy. I would never want to try to do this. The smelt and the sprat, they know where it's at. Something, 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 roar! <laughs> <laughs> so no, the answer is no, I cannot. I, I This Shoot. would stress me the freak out every single show. Like, I can't imagine doing this. Starting with, like, what Sebastian does. <laughs> the new play the flute, the oh, carp yes. play the harp, play the, the harp. place play the bass, and they sound in sharp, the bass play the brass the brass. chub play the tub the yeah. fluke is the duke of, i mean duke are you ca- soul. <laughs> yeah like crazy yes. i can't oh my god you can you can be honest with me did titus ever go up on the lyrics not that i remember that's impressive uh, probably go, not. Titus. he's pretty remarkable <laughs> he's and like oh my god and like hitting those notes every night it's like who are you superhuman Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we're talking The Little Mermaid, and my guest is the amazing, the incredible, the original cast member, Chelsea Stock. Is that what I should call you? Like, what is your what is your name now? <laughs> 
Well, I feel like I have lots of names. My professional name is Chelsea Morganstock. So okay. that's how like you would see it. Um, but my married name is Chelsea Piggott. So, you know. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> so I honestly thought that Chelsea Morgan was your maiden name and uh, Chelsea yeah. Morganstock was your married name. So that's oh, not that's not even including hubby. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. You know, when I did like my first uh, professional show when I was a teenager, they they just like used my whole name. So they used Chelsea Morgan Stock. And so I just like I stuck with it. Um, yeah. It's kind of funny because a lot of people have to do that, you know, in equity if if someone yeah. else has the same name. And so everyone would ask me that. And I was like, uh, no, I just That's did just it. That's just what it just was. It. <laughs> For me, I it was either do Jeff Parsons or Jeffrey Scott Parsons. I didn't like Jeffrey Parsons. It felt like grading to me. So th- hmm. then I went, I went, I was like, you know what, dad, you gave me all three names, so I'm going to use all three names. Exactly, right? When else yeah. do you get to use all three names? Thank you. My dad, <laughs> he would only use my all three names when he was proud of me. I think a lot of people <laughs> have the opposite, like when you get yeah. in trouble, and I'd bring home a report card and he'd be, well, Jeffrey Scott Parsons. <laughs> oh, that's cute. Yeah, super cute. Um, <clears throat> you live in Los Angeles like me. And yet you have all of these amazing New York credits on the Broadway, like The Little Mermaid, like Something Rotten, like Sister Act as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Am I missing anything? Baby, it's you. Most <gasps> people don't really know of it. <laughs> I forgot about Baby, it's you. Yes. With the amazing um, Beth Level. Beth Level. Oh, yeah. yeah. She's incredible. So what brought you out to the West Coast? I'm always interested to hear because I ended up here yeah. as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, so many factors, but probably the biggest thing is that I'm from I'm from the West I'm from Northern California. So I really? was Yeah, I'm from San Jose. And so I was ready to to come out and be closer to family. I think that was like the number one thing. I was I was also a little burnout, you know? I was in yeah. something rotten at the time and I kind of kick myself now going, What the heck? did I do? Why did I leave that show? But, you know, eight shows a week and my husband, who wasn't my husband at the time, but we were together and I didn't see him and I was just ready for a change, you know? Um, and he was going to start his small business. And so we were like, well, where are we going to do that? We have to pick where we're going to be. And so we said, let's go to LA. And what is your business? We have a small coffee company called Tectonic Coffee. So do you provide coffee for different yeah, like we so we or? yeah we're a coffee roaster so we um we wholesale oh, okay. so uh, we you know travel my husband does more of the traveling I've gotten to do a little bit but we travel to the farms um, as much as we can bring it in and then we roast it and sell it wholesale to the cafes and restaurants and also direct to consumer online so someday wow. we're crossing our fingers we'll be able to open a cafe you know but we're slowly building the business so yeah. Yeah, That's I mean, so cool. I've learned a lot about coffee. I'm still not the coffee expert. <laughs> As a LDS Utah boy, I'm afraid you yeah. know a lot more about coffee than I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, I will go. I will walk down the coffee aisle just to be like, "Ooh, that smells nice." At the grocery store, <laughs> through my through yeah. my mask. So, when did you? get involved with Little Mermaid. Were you there from like the get go or? uh... Yeah. So my story is, um, it was my Broadway debut. I, 
I was in the, I was going to the Boston Conservatory for college. And uh, while I was there, it was my senior year and they were looking for an aerial. And at the time they couldn't find what they were looking for. So they reached out to one of my teachers. Well, um, an agent reached out to one of my teachers. And so she gave a few of our names. And so everything just kind of lined up. Like nothing in my life has ever lined up like this since then. (laughs) But I happened to be in New York at the time. And this audition came up and they're like, okay, great. Can you send us your headshot? And I had a black and white headshot. And they're yes, like, well, that's okay. That's okay. We'll just get you into the next audition. And there was something in my gut that was like, no, I need to go in for this. So anyway, uh, I went in for Ariel and I was like immediately in final callbacks, like by the end of the week for Ariel. And there was like a few of us there, Sierra included. And, and then I went back to college and then they called me back to come back to New York and do like some ensemble stuff and some dancing. And, and then, um, a few days later, I got the call. So my second wow. half of senior year, I knew I was going to be in The Little Mermaid. And so then it like literally timed out that I got to do my showcase. I got to do my graduation and then I started rehearsals. That's what I mean. <sighs> like nothing in my life has ever worked out like that since then. Um, I was extremely lucky to be in that position and to be prepared. And so anyway, uh, that's my my journey. I, I originated Andrina. The, the sister, one of the Mer sisters, and I understudied Ariel, and then I took over for Ariel later on. Incredible. Congratulations. Yeah. I remember <laughs> you telling me that, like, we were talking about what show you might want to talk about, and you said Mermaid has your heart. Yeah, for sure, forever. It's so interesting because I feel like I'm in this time in my life now, I'm sure you might feel the same, where you think back and you're like, ah, oh, huh. I don't know, not not things I would necessarily do different because I wouldn't change anything, but mm-hmm. I, I want to go back and do things a little bit differently or like experience <laughs> it again. You know, I'm like, I miss it so much and I can't, I kind of can't believe that that all happened in my life. Um, but I was so young. At the right. time I was like, I know what's going on and I understand the business and I know that this won't last forever. And But still, <laughs> you know, Still, I I look back and I'm like, oh, man, I I just I don't know. Did I embrace it as much as I should have or could have? I think we all have that stuff, though. Yeah. And I think, you know, I could I could I mean, I of course I could do things differently. I was like 23, you know, Mm -hmm. 24 at that time or whatever. And but like, did I do my best at that time with what I knew? Yeah, I did. You know what I mean? And that's, yeah. that's like the acceptance part that's always very difficult. <laughs> sure, sure. But yes, Mermaid has my heart and it, it always will. I mean, even to this day, if I get to sing a song from it or something, it, I feel it like in the depths of my soul. You know what I mean? Just wow. that connection. That's beautiful. Yeah. The musical The Little Mermaid is, of course, based on the original Disney animated film of the same name, which came out in 1989. It was written and directed by Ron Clements and John Musker, who later directed Aladdin and Hercules and Moana. All like They're kind of the directors of some of my favorite Disney animated films. And it has kind of an interesting story of how it came to be, because at this point, we consider Little Mermaid to be the, the renaissance of Disney animation. When it came out and was the huge success that it was and gave way to Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and everything that came after, Disney animation was back in a in a really huge way. But what I didn't realize until I started 
researching all of this, is that The Little Mermaid was actually an idea back in the 1930s for Disney Animation to do. That right after Snow White, they were looking at different vignettes from Hans Christian Andersen. For some reason, a bunch of circumstances happened that it gets shelved. And everybody forgets about it until Ron Clemens has the idea to do an animated film based on Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid. He tries to pitch it to Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was in charge of animation at the time. And Katzenberg actually swats it down because he wanted to focus on a sequel to the film Splash. Do you remember Splash, <laughs> that like Daryl <laughs> Hannah film? And he yes. was like, too many mermaids. Like, we can't do We can't ah. do this. He later changes his mind and they are allowed to start the like the pre-production process, looking at what the plot would look like, you know, writing synopses. And at that point, they accidentally stumble upon talk about like everything lining up perfectly. They stumble upon all of the original concept art and storyboarding that they did back in the 1930s for The Little Mermaid. And it just so happened that a lot of the things that they were looking at doing had already been done back then. So it was like wow. this perfect kismet of, yes, this is exactly what we should be doing. I think the most influential decision that they made was bringing on Howard Ashman, mm. who was, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, we can never talk about Howard Ashman too much on this podcast. He's a hero. <laughs> but he and his songwriting partner, Alan Menken, had had a huge hit with Little Shop of Horrors. And Disney gobbles him up. They ask him to come on and kind of take a look at this project. And what Howard brings to the animated film of The Little Mermaid is what ultimately changes Disney animation. They start looking at these films as Broadway musicals told in animated film form. Mm -hmm. You know, you go back and look at some of the films from the 1980s, like The Great Mouse Detective. There are There's music in there but it's more like they found opportunities within the story to have a song, right? They go mm -hmm. to a nightclub, so there's a mouse performing a song, and that's the song right. that we hear. Whereas with Little Mermaid, they decide from the get-go that music is, is an inherent part of the structure of the story. The way that we mm -hmm. are allowing the story to unfold is through the music. So Alan Minkin and Howard Ashman start work on it. I guess I didn't realize that Sebastian was originally Clarence, a British sort of butler type character. <laughs> and Howard suggested that they make the character Sebastian and give him more of a, a Caribbean feel, thereby bringing in some international influences or, or diversity, if you will, to, a, mm -hmm. to an animated film, which I think is very cool and very inspired. The film comes out in 1989. It's a huge hit. It makes millions of dollars. And really puts Disney back on the top. It had in the title role Jodie Benson, who mm -hmm. was a Broadway gal and had worked with uh, Howard on Smile, which was a big flop in the 1980s. She also mm -hmm. was in Crazy for You in the 90s. But mm -hmm. uh, I love that she's embraced the fact that she will always be Ariel. <laughs> and I, I mean, I would. <laughs> I, I do as much as I can. <laughs> right? But like sometimes you go to the Disney parks and you go on rides or hear music and it is an it's another voice. It's not the quote unquote mm. celebrity voice yeah. recreating some of those moments. But in the case of Little Mermaid, 
it's always Jody Benson and it's always Pat Carroll as Ursula. Yeah. And I really respect that about them. Yeah. You know, I read that Howard Ashman really pushed for true like musical theater performers to mm. do a lot of the animation. I don't know if it was much voice style as it was storytelling, you know, and I think totally. that's really cool. And I, I miss that a little bit. And in some of, you know, not all, not all animation is, has lost that, but, um, you know, of course, pop is such a big thing in our culture right now. And I, I'm gr- growing up, honestly, my dream was to be a Disney voice. So, <laughs> so like, you know, someone like Jody Benson is obviously what I listened to and wanted to, to be. I mean, that was when I started my obsession with like cast albums, to be honest, mm. because mm-hmm. I had the Little Mermaid cassette tape and the Aladdin cassette tape and the Newsies <laughs> cassette tape. Oh, Newsies. <laughs> and I would just play them over and over again. So I, I had I feel like I had it memorized inside and out. Yeah. Um, and even looking back on it, it's still a great movie. It's really yeah. well paced and still and, and really beautiful, too. Yeah. Um. What happens next is Disney Theatricals starts creating Broadway shows. And the first one they put up is Beauty and the Beast, which is a huge hit, right? (laughs) Then they have Lion King and, you know, so on and so forth. Then they decide that they want to start adapting The Little Mermaid for the stage, which, I mean, it makes sense why this was a little bit later in the progression of Disney Theatricals, because boy, oh boy, does this show provide a lot of problems. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, first and foremost, a huge portion of it is underwater. Uh And then there is a lot of it that isn't underwater. And how do you do that on stage? (laughs) I mean, that's first of all. Then you kind of have to deal with the fact that scale is a problem. Yeah. How do you have a, a crab next to a actual person and yet they're the same size how do you have the lead of your show lose her voice halfway through and then she like she doesn't talk for the entire rest of the like and that's going to be a musical what like there are so many interesting challenges along the way and I think that that is ultimately what kept them away from from trying to put this thing on stage earlier Mm. they originally get Matthew Bourne to do the show. Matthew Bourne, who did like Swan Lake and also had worked with them on Mary Poppins prior to this, right? Did Mary Poppins come Mm -hmm. out first? Yes. And Matthew Bourne's like co-choreographer ends up staying on the show, right? What was his name? Stephen. Stephen Muir. Mm -hmm. Stephen Muir, exactly. Yeah. He stays on the show, but Matthew Bourne leaves and they bring on instead Francesca Zambello. Is that how you say it? Zambello, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. She was basically an opera lady. She directed a lot of operas and had never had a musical on Broadway, but she had a good relationship with Disney because she directed the Aladdin show at Disney California Adventure here in in Mm. Southern California, which was, for all intents and purposes, the most successful Disney live show in their parks and history. Like it ran for mm-hmm. 13 years. Everybody loved it. The The guest reviews were always really, really high. So it just kept on, on going. And so she gets the show and it feels like a big risk to me. <laughs> 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 yeah. I mean, because her, like I said, her creativity is there. Her relationship with Disney's there. She obviously understands stagecraft. 
And yet the Broadway is a really specific animal. And if you've never done it before, like that seems scary. I don't know. Yeah, Yeah, I mean. What what kind? I mean, she must be kind of a a ballsy woman. What is your your experience with her? She is a strong, strong lady. (laughs) Yes. She, um, you know, you know, I didn't get as much like one on one work with her in the ensemble, obviously, like it was more, mm-hmm. I was part of the ensemble, part of, you know, even, even when we were just the Mer sisters. Um, and when I learned all of the aerial stuff, I worked with her associate. So I didn't oh, work okay. with her directly. That being said, we did have a few meetings. Like she was very personable and friendly to me. I didn't mean it like that as much as that, like no. working and directing, you know, wasn't as much one-on-one, but her biggest thing was that when she, took this on and, and, and heard, I don't know if it was her and Steven, but I know it was her. She did not want to use any water and she didn't want to use any flying. So uh, that was like her, like, like thing. aerials were, <laughs> that's funny. Aerials <laughs> in a show about Ariel was a no go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We did have a little flying just when like the, the ship sank and stuff. So he could look like he was floating. But other than that, she didn't want like the, the mermaids flying, um, and no water. That, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that was the right move or not. I, I've mm-hmm. done the second, like, re-envision of this that they've kind of done around the country where there is flying and mm-hmm. it's beautiful. Um, but it's complicated. Not that they couldn't have done that on Broadway. Of course they could have. I just think that there was this other kind of abstract vision for it. I, I don't know. Yeah. If, did you see the show? I didn't see it in New York. I've seen the Glenn Casal one, the yeah, the, exactly. the revised one. So like, you know, we had these big like set pieces that um were very abstract and were mm-hmm. used in very different settings. So they were meant to be used like above ground and underwater. I don't really know how to explain it without just kind of, you know, but th- there were these big <laughs> these big <laughs> Big pieces that went on and off stage and would break down a lot, which was was part of the issue. Um, oh, wow. And I was one of the lucky tiny people up on the pods. So you'd be like hooked in and then pulled up. And if we were above ground, I would be like a bird. And if I was under, I'd be like a, a fish. And anyway. Wow. It, it was just a different view, a different yeah, idea. A different and d- yeah, like was it was it? The, the perfect way or the right way. I don't know. People loved it. You know, I will say those set pieces mm-hmm. were difficult. They said they broke down a lot. And I feel like stagehands had to stay home, stay overtime a lot, fixing them like a lot. <laughs> um, Which is interesting because didn't there was like a whole stagehand strike, right? Yes. In right, the middle of your. Right when we were supposed to open, our opening got postponed due to wow. that. Yeah. Wow. But Francesca, I mean, she she was. One of the things I remember most about her, and I mean, I can't really, this was my first Broadway show, but mm-hmm. was that she would get us all together and she just would have these like super inspiring like pep talks. You know what I mean? Oh, as a company. Cute. But she was, she was tough and she was, um, she was a strong presence, is a strong presence. <laughs> I just haven't yeah. worked with her since. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. But I will say with like the Broadway production, the coolest bit was that we were on um, Keeley's and so they would bring these set pieces in, like the water would come in and so it would be like about waist height, I guess I would say, on some people. And so our tails would come up so it looked like it was above 
and then we glide oh. so it looked like you were kind of swimming. That's you know? cool. Well, now it is really you cool. met you mentioned the word, which is the, the word. word that the the <laughs> word that like <laughs> just completely set Broadway afire, and that word is of course heelys. <laughs> For those who don't know, heelys are shoes with like a big fat wheel on the, heel. on the heels. Mm-hmm. And they were very popular with, I'd, I'd say, tweens, because you can walk, but then you can also glide in them. Correct. And <laughs> And so then for, for something <laughs> so wholeheartedly embraced by, by the tween community to then be put on a Broadway stage as, like, stagecraft mm. really blew everyone's minds in, in all sorts of ways. Mm. Now, when I... I was Googling Heelys <laughs> and I took a picture of it and maybe I'll put it on our, our Insta. But when you type in Heelys, the first thing that comes up is Heelys the Little Mermaid. Oh my gosh. So like, were they a sponsor? Like, did like how much money <laughs> has that they... company made because of the Little Mermaid? Yeah, that, I, I wonder. You know, we had like special ones made that were made. They were they looked like ice skating boots almost with okay. the heel on them, which were much more supportive and made were able to right. dance in and which is a whole nother thing dancing with a wheel on your heel. Oh my um, gosh, yes, of course. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the tennis shoe is really thick, you know, so the kids who right. wear them like they're much more probably stable for mm-hmm. you can't dance in them really, but they're stable for like, you know, day to day. Um yeah, I mean, I, I remember the story being that Stephen Muir saw a kid, like, using him in the airport, and that's where he kind of clicked and was like, oh, I know what we should do. And wow, so, um, interesting. Yeah, and they made us put them all on in the callbacks. <laughs> oh, shoot. And do across the floors, and it was quite interesting. Like, we were all over the except for Sierra, we were all over the place. <laughs> but she was like, she held it together. I mean, she... She's an she was an ice skater, so I think that probably helped. But it you're is, kidding! It's I didn't like, know that. Of course, yeah, she's an ice skater. She's, <laughs> she's like the um, most. So we're, of course we're talking about Sarah Bogus, um, who originated the role of Ariel. She is like one of the most interesting people. <laughs> I, I feel like I've ever seen because she seems like she's a total bohemian, like yeah. kind of free love '70s groovy girl, like a groovy chick. But then she's like coloratura soprano, also can build her face off. And then she's an ice skater, too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if she does anymore, but I, I remember that was the case. That's yeah. crazy. Okay, so how long did you guys rehearse? Hmm. We were in New York for, God, I don't know, a, a month, month, a month and a half. Then we went to Denver, rehearsed there, did out-of-town okay. tryout, came back to New York, rehearsed tech. Well, postponed, open then open. <laughs> right. So it was a long it was a long process. And Denver was hugely successful. I remember reading that they like sold out every seat for the entire run. Yeah, and it was just so much fun. <laughs> it yeah. was such a fun time in my life. Yeah. Yeah, Aww. it was fun. I mean, I just think back to like the first, you know, the people who came to the very first preview ever. It's like there's this following that wants to see the very first performance ever of a Broadway show of a Disney Broadway show probably Broadway in general but this was like a Disney following I just didn't really even think to expect all that kind of stuff you know like right yeah you're just trying to get through your your show and and at that time during the day we'd be rehearsing and they'd change you know some choreography but they'd say don't put that in tonight 
So we'd have to do the old version that night and then keep oh. rehearsing the other version during the day. And same thing right. with like even words, you know, like uh, scenes and whatnot, like Sierra and Sean would get, you know, I don't know, things would change. It, it was difficult. It was really, that's the stuff I really like, you know, yeah. like the creative part. It does feel like a, a completely separate skill to do that and then you're open and then you just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Like those are two different skills that are part of the same. Oh my career. God. Completely. I so agree. And I think like when I was talking earlier about being burned out, like that's kind of what, you know, I, I think that's pretty common, you know, act- mm-hmm. people always joke that actors are looking, always looking for the next job. And I think that's mm-hmm. probably why, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard to do the same thing every, every night. You know, and, and, and it's also different to be in the ensemble and to be playing a role, like mm-hmm. very different because like, I feel like, especially when I was in the ensemble and understudying Ariel and I got to go on for Ariel for like a week or something, cause Sierra would be out of town or whatever. It was such a different experience, obviously, cause I was playing the lead role. But besides that, like I was reacting and acting with somebody in every scene, you know, and as an ensemble member, it's the same, but it's not given to you. You know what I mean? You have to mm-hmm. work so much harder to make it, um, to be so present and to be yeah. creative and make it different every time. I mean, it's the same thing goes for the leads. I'm not saying it's actually any easier. It's just, um, but it means that sometimes there's something on the page and then sometimes you have to create it yourself. And, totally. and, and in the ensemble, it, it's your job. Like part of your job as an ensemble totally. is to build a world that isn't there on the page. And I think that that goes like people don't recognize that en- enough. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> you know, for sure. So the show opens and I'd say in general, like audiences really love it. But the critics don't. Is that like a fair yeah. statement? Yeah, definitely. I, I you know, I don't actually don't even remember all of the, the reviews, but I, I knew, you know, critics didn't like it. I think there was like a general um, thing around Disney as a whole. Mm-hmm. But, but I mean, it's The Little Mermaid. So of course, like the, the audiences were full of these little girls that were just wanted to be Ariel and little boys that wanted to be up on that stage. And it, who also even, wanted like, to be Ariel and wanted to be Ariel. And there were people my age out there who grew up with it and you know what I mean? So like there were plenty of people that really loved it and wanted to see it. It has a great run. Were you there for the whole run? Yes. Yeah. So I closed it out as Ariel. Yeah. That's so cool. My gosh, Chelsea. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So it's like close to 700 performances. Like it's a hit. And yet I don't really think of it as a success. And I, and I, and, and I feel bad about that and I don't know why. There, there I mean, was. There's just kind of this cloud of whether or not it was good that mm-hmm. keeps me from just assuming that it it, it was a big hit. And right. maybe also there's the unfair comparison of Beauty and the Beast and Lion King. That's what I was. Both of say. which had much longer runs. Exactly. Like to compare it to other Disney shows. I mean, if you compare it to like Tarzan, I guess it was. You know, it ran a little bit longer, a little bit better. Um, sure. But yeah, I'm wondering actually now, is it like the same amount of time as Frozen or is it even longer than Frozen? Right. Um, I mean, those obviously are different circumstances, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to lie. Like before I got an audition for it, I heard that they were doing that on stage and I kind of was like, well, mermaid. Like that was my first reaction. Right. Then you get like the audition and then you get the show and then you're like, (laughs) never mind. I love this. Yeah. Um, 
But no, I mean, is any show perfect? No, of course not. There's always things that like, especially being in the creative process from the beginning, you see, you see certain aspects being worked out over and over and over trying to figure things out. And sometimes you just can't get it to be absolutely spot on. Um, and right. for Mermaid, it was the Ursula's demise. We'll definitely talk about that. Let's talk a little bit about the Tony Awards, because uh, I guess maybe that might be another way that the show was painted to not be a huge success is that it only gets nominated for two Tony Awards, one for score for Alan Menken and Glenn Slater, Glenn. Mm-hmm. who took over the, uh, writing the lyrics because Howard Ashman tragically died in the AIDS crisis in the early 90s. But boy, Glenn did a great job. He's got some really, really smart work in the show. And then the other one was for lighting design. (laughs) We lit that show so many times. Really? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I just remember standing on the stage being like, oh, my God. To come back to do another lighting. Yeah. That's crazy. Lighting cues. Well, and, yeah. <laughs> and those big set pieces that you were talking about, they were meant to kind of refract light in a, an interesting way, right? That made yeah. it feel more under. A lot of a lot of those set did, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. The musicals that did get nominated for Best Musical that year were In the Heights, which won, mm-hmm. and was a, was a, you know, a huge smash. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cry Baby, which was a stage adaptation of the John Waters film. Passing Strange, which is a really interesting piece uh, that Stu mm-hmm. wrote, and then Xanadu, which was mm. yet another stage adaptation of a film based on the, a cult classic film from the 80s. So Little Mermaid didn't get nominated. There was another snub that was even more surprising, and that was Young Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein had also come out that season and was, mm-hmm. you know, was Mel Brooks, who had had this huge hit with the producers, won more Tony Awards than anybody else. And then Young Frankenstein, it doesn't even get nominated for Best Musical. And many people thought it was because when Mel Brooks had won his Tony Awards for the producers, he had made jokes about how he was going to be winning everything that night. So like, I'll see you soon. And that they took offense to that. And so then Mm. he didn't get nominated. So everybody was kind of focused on Young Frankenstein. It didn't feel like as big a snub as maybe it would have. Not to mention you guys were selling just fine. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, we were directly across the street from In the Heights. And um, it's funny, you know, now that you're like saying all this, I'm like, God, I don't even really remember all of those other shows being the same season. And I think that's partly because I was young and new. Like, mm-hmm. as time went on in New York, if I was in another show, I kind of always knew what was going on in other shows because I always knew somebody in something. I was much more involved in the community. But at the time, I just don't think I I was. I was, like, in my own little bubble, you know, except for In the Heights. And it's like I knew In the Heights was going to win. They were across the street. They, like, had mm-hmm. this really great camaraderie. You know, I was very jealous of, of that company. Um so I think that kind of maybe just I just kind of assumed that everything was going to go to them and didn't think otherwise, you know. When I look at your cast, mm. your cast was filled with like quintessential New York Broadway musical theater actors, mm-hmm. uh, like a lot of veterans. You had Sherry Renee Scott, you had Sean Norm. Palmer and uh, Titus Burgess and John Norm Tracy Lewis. Egan and Norm Lewis yeah. and... And then Heidi Blickenstaff, like in a, mm. the small role. And so I would think that there would be almost a, a veteran type feel in the show. 
But would you mind talking about like what the morale of the show was was or felt like? Yeah, I mean, um, being out of town in Denver, I, I've never been on tour, so I'm assuming this is kind of what that's like. But it was really cool. It just felt like we were all part of something together. And there was not really, um, it just felt like we were kind of one big family. Um, and that didn't just go with cast. I mean, I'm talking about everybody on and off stage, stagehands, directors. I mean, even like Alan Menken and like Doug, right? Like people who were, we were all part of this piece. And it felt like that switched a little when we moved to back to New York. It just felt like there's like a little bit of a separation. Like there's the ensemble and then here are the principals. Not that anyone was necessarily like mean. Mm-hmm. I mean, Norm Lewis is like literally the nicest man on the planet, <laughs> but you know, people have their dressing rooms and then you go back to like your normal life. And it wasn't, didn't feel quite as much of that like family aspect. So I think it was just me kind of learning the balance of what all that is. And, you know, I was again, very young. I was understanding the lead role going on a lot. And, you know, I didn't feel fully supported by, by the entire company. That's too bad. Um, most of the company, but you know, I had some some issues. So, yeah. Dang, I just want to give you a compliment and say that what I think is amazing <laughs> that is that you stayed and kind of owned your experience in it, and mm. that's kind of one. <laughs> mm. Like above all of those things, you say that like the show has your heart when all is said and done. How cool that no matter what, an experience can be incredibly profound and important and. And we'll we'll stay that way regardless of what may come up in the process. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Let's go ahead and go through the show, if you don't mind. Okay. <laughs> I think one of the the easy criticisms for Disney shows is that sometimes they just copy and paste things onto the stage, and mm. to the point where like scenes and d- pieces of dialogue are untouched. And I don't feel that way about The Little Mermaid. In fact, it's one of the few Disney shows that I saw. And in my first sitting, I was like, oh, this is something of its own. It doesn't feel just like a carbon copy of, of the movie. Doug Wright was who they brought in to do the book, who I don't know if he had ever done a musical before, but he had had a huge success with I Am My Own Wife, mm-hmm. um, which is a very not Disney type of show <laughs> that uh, just won every award imaginable. And you can see how between him and kind of Alan Menken and Glenn Slater revisiting the score that was written for the film, how they made very conscious decisions to make this product its own thing. And I and I appreciate that. And some I agree with and some I don't, but like I have to applaud them for that. Mm-hmm. The show starts out with all of the sailors on the on the ship, which is uh, Prince Eric's ship. Question, does Prince Eric have parents? His... You know, now that I think about, like, his mother, I don't know, but his father is past. So Grimsby is, like, his father's, his father figure. Yeah. There's this, like, urgency that he needs to get married and kind of ascend to the throne. Correct. But, yeah, Grimsby, who was Jonathan Freeman, who was the voice of Jafar. Like, how cool. What a, like, what a weird (laughs) Disney vortex. (laughs) Yeah. He's super sweet. Love him. And uh, Grimsby's this guy who's kind of reminding him of all of that. They're on the ship talking about the mysterious fathoms below, right? That's the opening to the show. And 
that gives way to us actually going under the sea. Mm-hmm. We meet the daughters of Triton, one of which is the amazing Chelsea Morganstock. And <laughs> like the the family politics of all of this is is much more complex in the stage version. So mm-hmm. Ursula and Triton are actually brother and sister. Mm-hmm. I guess when their father died, they gave him the the Triton. Trident. The trident? Like as in the gum? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. All right. I don't think I knew that. <laughs> and then What did you think it was? I I honestly thought it was called a trident. Like triton, oh. but with a T at the end. Trident. I'm pretty positive. Trident. Yeah. Yeah, no, that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> and and then the father gave Ursula this shell. And <laughs> oh, the shell. Just like the strongest <laughs> trident and then the most fragile of shells. <laughs> and these two things are the basis for all of their power. Mm-hmm. And so Ursula has tried to do this coup d'etat over King Triton. He defeated her. She's kind of banished to the nether regions of the sea, especially because mm-hmm. she keeps using all of this black magic. And so now they're celebrating the anniversary of this whole thing with a concert in which all of his daughters, all of King Triton's daughters, are taking part. Now, I guess we can also say right now that we find out about Ariel's mom or King Triton's wife in the stage version where she was killed by humans, Mm -hmm. which is what fuels his prejudice against and hatred against humans. And fear. And so, like, why on earth would you be okay with your daughter going and being part of that world that killed your wife, right? Correct. Like, I get it. So the the daughters are introducing themselves and singing the song, and then it comes time (laughs) for Ariel's big solo, and she's not there. This is because she is out swimming around and forgot all about this concert. Which I guess we should say the song that y'all were singing was written by Sebastian, who's the master of music of the underwater kingdom. Yeah, yeah. I totally thought that this was a very simple story until I'm like trying to talk about it. I'm like, good gravy. Like, this is a whole civilization yeah. with like history and religion. <laughs> yes. So then we meet Ariel. Now, what's interesting is that in the film, part of your world has become the quintessential I want song for like. teaching young students about what an I want song is a character talking about you know their dreams and desires and yet there's another I want song that they wrote and what what's that one called the world above that's the very first song before uh after the ship so like that's a pre I want song I guess Mm. yeah yeah it's it's the first lyric is this is where I belong so she's on the surface you know and she's like where I belong it's where I want to be well, I guess also it's kind of important to point that out. Otherwise, it just seems like Ariel's obsessed with Prince Eric. Like it's more than just a crush on a boy, right? It's about her desire to be in this world. Correct. Now, she has friends. Ariel has a friend named Flounder who has kind of been repurposed to this young boy. Mm-hmm. And does Flounder have a crush on Ariel? Yes. Which I don't like that. <laughs> Yeah. Not a fan. Yeah. And then you also have Scuttle, who is the scatterbrained seagull, who's always teaching 
Ariel about all of the great human things that she finds, like dinglehoppers and snarflats. Now we've met everybody except for this famous Ursula. And when we do meet her, we see that she is a giant octopus. In the animated film, I, like I said, the part was originally voiced by Pat Carroll, who gives one of the great vocal performances in all of animated film history. Originally, it was supposed to be B. Arthur. Mm. She turned it down, B. Arthur of the Golden Girls. And then Elaine Stritch was hired. Oh, my gosh. And, but then Howard Ashman decided against that because she couldn't really do musically what he wanted, mm. or what he and Alan Menken had envisioned, which is this Brechtian German cabaret type chanteuse. Mm. Like all of the songs of Ursula's sound almost like cabaret. Like dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Yeah. Yeah. The song that they wrote for your production was I Want the Good Times Back, which sounds kind of like one of those songs. Yeah. And was played by someone who I adore, Sherry Renee Scott. I will say, however, one thing that I really loved about the original film is that Ursula is sensual, but she's also disgusting. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's well known that the animators based Ursula off of Divine, the drag queen. And then you hire Sherry Renee Scott, who is just all glamour and all sex. And so I, I miss some of that disgustingness. It was definitely, I, don't know. What do you think? I actually don't know. I don't know why they decided to go that route. Um, but it definitely was one of the talked about topics, of course. Um, mm-hmm. I don't remember if the critics talked about it. I'm sure they did. But I don't know. I, it was unexpected. And then after Sherry, it was Faith Prince. Who I think would be better, like more traditionally cast. Correct. I, b- I believe it was a bit more... Not to say that Faith Prince is disgusting, but she's like more of a <laughs> like a character actress who's yeah. willing to go there. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I feel bad because like we did an episode on Aida. Everybody who listens knows that I love Sherry Renee Scott. She obviously had it because of Aida, a relationship with Disney theatricals. And when you listen to her, she is both making like really interesting brilliant choices and then at the same time also feels a little miscast. I don't I don't know if I feel that way about any other performance in mm-hmm. modern musical theater, but it's like she as she's as brilliant as she is miscast. Yeah. I can't believe I'm saying that. I hope that's okay. <laughs> what was what was Faith Prince's take on it and how was it different? Sherry left um, I did it with Heidi for a little bit, and then and Faith mm. came in, and we and we closed it out. Yeah, um, and Faith was just this so kind and so nice and just amazing. I yeah, I would say her take was just more robust. You know, it's just more like I, I hear exactly what you're saying, and I agree with what you're saying. I don't know, you know, back at that time, who would who I would have put in it originally because. I, I don't think I knew well enough who was, like, around. <laughs> um, sure. But sure. it was definitely a different take. Okay, so Ariel goes home because she's, you know, oops, I forgot about the concert. Ah! And it accidentally slips that she was up doing more human stuff. We find out about King Trine's uh, xenophobia. <laughs> and she rushes off. King Triton assigns Sebastian the crab to make sure that Ariel doesn't get into any trouble. And then that is when part of your world 
hits. And of course, it's a legendary song that almost got cut from the film because Jeffrey Katzenberg thought that audiences would be bored. But <laughs> I think I think Part of Your World is probably the song that changed Disney animation forever. Mm-hmm. To dedicate a full three minutes to the inner life of a quote-unquote Disney princess mm. that isn't just someday my prince will come, you know? Yeah. It's like she she's really expressing something from her her gut. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it like for you performing that song? Because, I mean, it's just, it's so well-known. Just, there's nothing that will compare to doing that on stage by myself on Broadway. There's just not. But, you know, I was thinking about it when we were, going to do this talk. And I was like, you know, it's still, it still gets me every time I sing it. And probably even more now, it's always relatable, I feel like. And I mean, I could sing Disney all day. Like that's my, that's my jam. (laughs) That's my jam. Um, But everything about it, I, I, you know, everything about it, the, the story it tells, the lyrics, the musicality, the, the builds, the, like everything about it is just, it does. It feels like the perfect little song. Like, I can't think of one thing about it that isn't a perfect match for everything surrounding it. Yeah. You know? Agreed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Howard and Alan, I love mm. you. So out, out of part of your world, the ship that we met at the top of the show gets hit by the storm. It doesn't, you know, go into a huge explosion on fire type thing like it does in the film. Mm. But it it throws Eric overboard. Mm-hmm. And Ariel saves him from drowning, takes him to shore, and now here's this... Well, I I guess I don't want to put words, because you're both the person who lived in Ariel's fins, and and you're also a woman. So tell me about what you think's going on inside of her. She's, uh, you know, she's obviously got a huge crush on this, but what what does it mean? I don't, you know, yes, but I kind of think that she would have saved anybody. (laughs) <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like, if, if it doesn't matter that it was him, uh, just happened to be him, that's it. Like, that's just who she is. And she she's so fascinated with their world. It's almost like she is more selfless than selfish, right? I think sometimes yeah. we it's easy to think that she was just obsessed with this boy and why she saved him. But the fact is, is that she knows the consequences. She's been taught by her dad about what the dangers of humans are and she sees the decided to put all of that at risk to save someone yeah and you know disney's always about showing what it takes to be a hero and she's already shown that she has that kind of heart yeah well said they oh, thank you <laughs> <laughs> and that gives away to one of the best reprises of all time mm. the part of your world reprise is somehow even better than part of your world yes so great <laughs> we all in a pool recreated the <laughs> <laughs> yeah the aerial moment of like swishing her hair back and the water splashing how would how did you guys stage that do you remember yeah the biggest thing for aerial we we had the rock kind of there we didn't have it exactly the same but we were sitting on the rock so it kind of it kind of had the same idea and just singing that i mean mm. it's like the best just like i think you belting up to a who knows what and it was pretty cool. So now Ariel comes back home and she's obviously on cloud nine or however you would say that for people who live <laughs> underwater. And everyone's like, what's her deal? 
which gives way to a new song that they wrote for the show called She's in Love that the sisters and Flounder sing about her. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is honestly like my favorite version of Alan Menken, which is 60s doo-wop. And yet it doesn't sound like anything else in the score. It's just this one song that for some reason sounds like 60s uh, Phil Spector. (laughs) But still totally fun and so many great lyrics. She's in love. She's found a deep sea hunk. She's mm. in love. And now she's good as sunk. Yeah. Just all of the wordplay of they know their fish. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. So after she's in love and like how many flounders did you have? Because they have pretty strict rules now about how many performances. Yeah. We started with two. Children can do. Wait. Yeah. Just two at a time. Okay. But we went through two pretty quickly because their voices changed so quickly. Oh, that song is so flipping high. Yeah. It was actually really sad because when we did the cast recording, we already had the new kids in. And <gasps> oh. they let them all record it so they could all have a version, which is really nice of them. <laughs> they didn't have to do that. That's cute. Uh, but yeah. those boys were already having a really hard time. It happened so wow. fast. It was crazy. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Let's see. Now we go back on land where Eric has recovered from his near drowning experience. But what he hasn't recovered from is his (laughs) near love experience. And he has Ariel's voice in his head. And so he talks about this girl. He's supposed to be getting married. And now the only woman that he can think about is whoever saved him from drowning. And he sings a song called Her Voice, which is actually very beautiful, Mm -hmm. but cements in my mind that romantic leads are just the most boring roles in all of theater. (laughs) Now, Sebastian accidentally reveals to King Triton that Ariel saved a human. So Triton confronts her about it and in the process destroys her grotto, right? Destroys all of her human things Mm -hmm. in a fit of rage. This is the moment when I was growing up and I always talk about this, I could not stomach this scene. It made me feel so sad inside that I would walk out and like go get a drink of water or something during the scene and come back so that I didn't have to watch King Triton. I don't know, maybe it was like my hoarder tendencies or something, but just like (laughs) the idea of of watching him destroy all of the things that she sang about during Part of Your World just destroyed me as a a young lad. Yeah, it's a tough scene. But it's also great fuel because now she's at that vulnerable place where Ursula can sink her tentacles into her, (laughs) having realized that Ariel might be the way to get to Triton. Like, she is his Achilles heel. They sing this song called Sweet Child that lures her to Ursula, and she goes. (laughs) When she's there, Ursula basically presents an opportunity for her Mm -hmm. and says, look, I know how much you love being in the human world. So in a Faustian sort of play, I'm going to let you have legs and go up and be with your sweet prince. All you have to do is give me your voice. And if you in three days time can get him to kiss you, true love's kiss, excuse me, Mm -hmm. then you get to stay human forever. And if not, she owns Ariel's soul. And I love that Act 1 ends with Poor Unfortunate Souls because it is such good writing. I love this song so much. Like, what a tour de force. Yeah, it's a good song. I just wanted to take us through some of these lyrics because now Ariel's like, how can I possibly get him to love me if I can't talk? Like, how is that going to work? This doesn't seem like a good deal. 
And Ursula sings this part of the song where she says, come on, they're not all that impressed with conversation, talking about humans. Mm -hmm. They're not all that impressed with conversation. True gentlemen avoid it when they can. But they dote and swoon and fawn on a lady who's withdrawn. It's she who holds her tongue who gets a man. Mm -hmm. Which is so full Mm -hmm. of psychology. And I'm, I'm a dude here talking about this, but what I believe society has constantly taught women, which is if you're loud and opinionated, that you're not going to find a man, which is the worst possible thing you could do. Mm-hmm. And this is a children's animated film. Right. This kind of psychology and nuance in 1989 in an animated film that probably isn't even found in films for adults. Right. Like how inspired, how incredible. Yeah. And I think it plays, and you can you can tell me what you think, but I think it plays on Ariel's insecurities, mm-hmm. right? I don't know. Have you ever felt like that as a woman? Have you ever felt like you needed to be, be small? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I think, I mean, it's exactly what you said. It's That is part of Ariel's battle, you know, and probably lots of women mm-hmm. or people. And um, I mean, I grew up in a, a family where my, my dad is so not like that. You know, he's like, <laughs> he's got two daughters and he mm-hmm. is pro, pro ladies all, all the way um, and always told us to stand up for ourselves and whatnot. But, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm, I am an introverted person. So it's easy for me to kind of just, if I feel that that is the right thing to do, I will do that. I will, I, meaning it's easy for me to go into my shell, you know? So um, it's interesting mm. because hearing those lyrics, like, I don't know when I heard it as a kid, do you hear, do, does that sink in? Do you even hear what, what they're saying? You know what I mean? Who knows? No, um, that. I think that that's what I love about musical theater is that you can have these songs that, I mean, Sondheim's the same way, but I think mm. Howard Ashman has these lyrics where you look deeper and there there are just so many layers about humanity buried within them because it's not necessarily as straightforward as maybe some of the pop songs that you referenced earlier. You know, it's mm. very, it's pretty nuanced. Yeah. So then the first act ends with, Ariel agreeing to giving away her to voice. The seal. Mm-hmm. If you were to give advice to young girls, what would you say to them to encourage them not to give away their voice? Trusting who you are and being true to who you are, because I think it's easy to try to fit into a mold. I can only imagine now, because at that time, social media wasn't even what it is now. Um, mm-hmm. I can only imagine that that makes it even harder. But I think, especially as an actor, something I didn't quite grasp early enough or would love to have grasped earlier is what I am is what makes me successful. It's it's not being like anybody else. It's not looking at, you know, a specific way um, to fit a mold. What What people are drawn to probably in any aspect of life is who you are uniquely. Just embrace Embrace who you are and trust that that's enough. Amen. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but I do, I think it can be so confusing in a business where we're constantly trying to win a part, right? Totally. Where we're like, I'll be whoever you want me to be. Totally. Like, so scary. It's still hard. <laughs> like, that's only something I think now am I wrapping my head around, you know? And I think that's because I'm teaching more and I'm on the other side Mm. a little bit more and you look and you're like 
well, I don't want you to be exactly like that last person. I want you to be you. Like that is what, Mm. that's what's interesting, you know? And the hardest part about the business is letting go of any control because we have zero, you know, all you can do is prepare, do the best you can, and that's it. And that is what you have to leave being proud of. Like that, that's where your confidence comes from. Not if you get the job, but leaving feeling like you did everything you could, you know, because if, if I've, I've left plenty of auditions where I'm like, oh, I did not, I did not prepare for that. That was not. And then I beat myself up. But had I gone in and done everything I could and I still didn't get it, then, you know, I. What can you be mad about? You can't. You're, you are enough. And that job just wasn't yours, wasn't meant for you. As somebody who started out in the show as an understudy, mm. do you feel like your job is to copy what Sierra does? Yes, there's a very, you know, most of my career was understudying. And that was something I was a little bit tired of by the time I left, you know. Um, But I think it's show to show, honestly, because usually, like I said, you work with the um, associate director. Sometimes stage manager, you learn the part. But I most of the time got the chance to work with the associate directors because I was in the original cast. And um the hard part is being like, okay, hit this number, this word, hit this at this yeah. point. That stuff takes out all of that organic, natural being. A lot of times they'll say to you, I really want you to just be you and do you. But like there's little things you have to hit that make it very difficult. Hmm. So being an understudy, I would say, is probably one of the hardest things. Being a swing is one of the hardest things, you know, like hitting these marks but making it your own. And like even kind of touching what we were talking about earlier, you hear the same thing every night. You hear the show every every day in the same rhythm or whatever. And some people love understudies coming in and like mixing it up a bit and changing it up for them. And some do not, you know, so you have to mm. deal with that as well. Personalities of, of other actors. Oof. This is a complicated <laughs> art form. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. <laughs> Okay, so act two begins with Ariel No Voice, Ariel No Voice, as she is now called, <laughs> um, with her legs trying to get used to him. And enter Scuttle, who has this like funny vaudeville song called Positivity. He's obviously always mixing up words. <laughs> then Eric arrives and sees her, and they're drawn to each other. And he goes to talk to her, and then she goes to talk back, but she doesn't. And so now she doesn't have a voice. He's like, how could it be you? You don't have a voice. But he brings her back to the palace anyway, where the headmistress Carlotta and like some of the maids bathe and dress her. And they're kind of fascinated with how weird she is <laughs> because she's experiencing, <laughs> like, talk about high entropy. She is experiencing all of these things for the very first time and can't express any of it. So... From a musical standpoint, they created a song for us to hear what's going on inside her head, which is Beyond My Wildest Dreams, which I think is adorable and is one of the things that I really love about what Alan Menken did was that he went back to his Oscar winning score, not just the songs, but like he went to the score of the film and figured out which motifs he could make songs out of. Mm. Yeah, I remember getting that song for the audition. I was like, what? but um lots of words and stuff but i also could imagine because of that because it was underscoring first it isn't meant 
for human voice, right? <laughs> it's meant for a violin or yeah. something. So all of a sudden you're like, dun, 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 like doing things that aren't meant for a human voice yeah. to ne- necessarily be doing. That night, they are all treated to a dinner created by Chef Louis, which then brings, of course, Les Poissons, which... Mm-hmm. I mean, is there anything better than a Howard Ashman song about food? Um, <laughs> you got Les Poissons. You got Be Our Be Guest from Beauty and the Beast. You got Feed Me from Little Shop. Like, he is the king yeah. of amazing lyrics about food. <laughs> and that is, like, the production number of the second act, isn't it? Yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's have... a pretty long, big thing. Yeah. It's, like, the big dance number, the big, yeah, the big thing. Okay, that leads to... Honestly, my favorite part of the whole show, which is one step closer. Mm. It's this moment that they've created where Ariel and Eric get to know each other by dancing. Mm-hmm. And as a dancer, like I love that they went there with it, that they're like, okay, how if they can't talk, then how else can you get to know each other? And dancing in like especially in musical theater is such a great tool. So they have this song in which they learn how to dance. And in the same way, get to know each other and feel closer to each other. It's like my favorite scene in the whole musical. I Mm. love it. Yeah, it's good. It is really cool and and, and moving that they can express themselves in that way. And they almost kiss at the end. it feels incredibly intimate. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Say what? I said, and they almost kiss at the end. Or why don't they? He hears the, ah. So somehow Ursula has brought in this, like, Um. and so he's like, and he second guesses himself and he's like, I got to go. I got to go and I have to get ready for the, the ball or whatever. Got it. So mm. Ursula brings out that pesky shell. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Uses Ariel's voice. <laughs> now, what is this ball? The ball is like. Is so, that, so Grimsby. Like well, yeah, because, you know, they keep saying you have to find your princess. You have to find your princess, yada, yada. And he's like, I right. want to find this woman and so Grinsby's like okay we'll bring everyone in to sing they'll sing for you and he's like oh okay oh, then I'll recognize you've been the so voice. obsessed with the voice now we're gonna have we're gonna literally do a <laughs> an episode of the voice right exactly exactly so that's currently underway to be planned before that though is kiss the girl which is another almost kiss for Eric Correct. and Ariel what a great song Nothing wrong about that moment. Um, Flotsam and Jetsam break it up. You guys didn't fall, though, right? You didn't fall out of the boat. No, they just, they electrocute. They, like, shake the boat. And it was kind of a similar thing. Oh, I gotta go. I gotta go home. Were the characters electrocuted? I'm trying. Now I'm like, that's crazy. Is that really what happened? I mean, they shook the boat. I guess if you think about it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so, so I guess now it's the night before this whole contest, and we have a, mm. like a super traditional quartet where you have like four of our main characters all expressing something, and it interweaves so that they're all singing together, which is called "If Only." It's Ariel, Eric, Sebastian, King Triton. Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy that moment? Yeah, and it was emotional. It was an emotional moment. I remember getting very Mm. emotional doing that part. Just feeling so helpless, you know? You can't... He's, like, looking for this voice, and you're right there in front of him, and you can't do anything. Oof. You know? And those, obviously, are the words coming out of what she's thinking or experiencing, so... Random question. Favorite costume as Ariel? Uh, 
I think it has to just be the traditional, like the fin and the the shells. Really? Fin yeah, and shells? because I'm thinking about the dresses. Like, I loved the dresses, but there's always something. Like, it was always kind of falling off, or like I was dancing in it. You know, like there was always something that would that would frustrate me. Um, and I actually have one of them. They had to redo. Yeah, they redid. They redid the. The final one, which is like the wedding dress, they just kind of uh-huh. like redesigned it when I took over, and and um, so they sent it to me. I actually have that and the shoes. <gasps> Isn't that cool? Yeah, I know. Can you take a picture and and share, show it to me? Yeah, it's at my parents' house, but I'll have them. They might have a yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so I cool! Know. It is really cool because like every other show I've been in, you know, you see people with their like cool tap shoes from their shows, and I'm like, no yeah. one will ever let me keep anything. Like something rotten, I couldn't take any tap shoes. So I'm like, I need some cool shoes. <laughs> Looks like I've done nothing. My shoes are so like. It's so true though. You do like a tap show with somebody, and they have like these amazing painted gold and maroon, right. like Ben and Millers or something. Yeah. And you're like, where did you get those? And like, oh, First National of da 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 da. It's like, why don't I have any cool shoes? Yeah, I don't know. No one's ever let me take anything home. I take like, that back. I've done so many productions of West Side that I actually have a lot of Converse. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. That's kind of yeah. cool. Where okay, so now it's the contest, right? So now mm-hmm. we're now we're doing the voice. And all of the girls come in, and it's not it's not happening until <laughs> until Ursula comes in. Uh, no, Ariel breaks through. She like can't handle it, and she comes up and she does a little move from one step closer. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Call back. Yeah, that's so, so sweet. And I think in that moment, Eric decides like screw the voice. That's not correct. what is important. Yeah. Little does he know, he made the right choice. But right before they em- embrace, then Ursula appears. Correct. Because now Ursula can, I mean, I guess octopuses can be out of the water. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, octopuses um, also can't talk. So I realized that, like, we're, this is a fantasy. Yeah, I think there's a but... super a superpower here somehow, like, that she's expanded and she's um, taking over. So she shows up and she's like, too late. I don't know if that's what that's what it is in the movie. Yeah. And so then Flotsam and Jetsam grab Ariel to take her back to the sea. King Triton arrives and he agrees to take Ariel's place. So like her plan has worked where this is his Achilles heel. And he says, all right, set her free. You can have me instead. Mm -hmm. That means Ursula claims the trident and declares herself like the queen of the ocean mm-hmm. and banishes yeah. Triton. Now here we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is the most problematic part of it feels incredibly anticlimactic because you had the animated film and like Ursula grows to this giant octopus and Prince Eric is on this uh ship that his ship that had sunk earlier and they have this whole battle and of course you can't really do that I guess on stage. So can you tell me what you all decided on and then maybe we or actually do you want to tell me some of the things you tried or was it always just this? We tried a bajillion things. I I don't even know if I could like break down all the exact things, but it was all based wow. around the same idea um that the shell would be broken, her power would be lost and she would disappear. Ah. Um, yeah. Right. Some of it had to do with like how she was going to disappear, if there was going to be smoke, if there was going to be this, if it, you know, whatever. But it all had to do with the shell being broken. So Ariel had to get free from the eels, get the shell, and break it. And that's basically what ended up happening. 
<laughs> this is what was the most time was probably spent on in Denver trying to figure out how to do this. And mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody was ever fully pleased with how it came out. I mean, and there were multiple times it would go wrong. So was, she would just walk off stage, you know, or things like that, <laughs> where it's like, oh, that didn't, that didn't really work. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I, there could have been something else. Do I know what that is? No, of course not. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, no. It, it, and even the, playing Ariel, it would feel weird to like break free to get somehow. How do I get the shell to break? You know, like yeah. You know, the eels are like trying not to grab. Not, like, oh, don't go away! Somehow they let like, go. Like, oh, of me. she's so quick. Yeah. <laughs> because wait, because you're also in the water at this point. Have yeah. you gone back into the water? Yeah. I mean, I know that this is once again. I'm we're playing with fantasy, but like yeah. you're underwater. And then you, like, use gravity to break a shell by throwing it onto the ground? Like, that's not how underwater works. Yeah, I know. I was just trying to think because I'm like, well, maybe we're not. Maybe we're not. I don't. You know, that's a very good question. I can't remember now. I don't remember what we did exactly. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it was just, like, a definitely the most problematic part. So Ursula's like, ah, and walks off stage. Mm And uh, that I, that reverses all of everything that she had done. So King Triton is restored to the throne and to his daughter. Eric and Ariel are like reunited, and King Triton gives his blessing to Ariel. I, he has that really beautiful speech about like I turned around and you grew up. Mm-hmm. Like here, I thought I couldn't trust you because you were, you know, like a dumb kid in many ways, and <laughs> and. He finally sees what we have all seen, which is that she has this heart and this kind of vision for herself, and he allows her to to follow it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then everybody everybody rejoices. Now they can walk. Now mm-hmm. they can run. Oh yeah, and you know, in the original, like, in, I'm not sure if we ever brought it to New York, but in Denver, we had lots of mermen. Lots of mermen. They were all cut. Oh wow. Cut those I mean, mermen. They were in Too it. They just became sailors. Yeah, exactly. Um, then there were mermaids dancing with sailors, which again is your same question. Yeah. Oh, so basically, that whole ending just became like a fantasy world. Interesting. A little bit muddy. <laughs> a little bit. It, it's almost like they got to a point, and then they're like, "Just, just do it." Yeah. Yeah. Which seems insane with how much time we had and how much money and. But I don't know. It, it's like couldn't come up with the perfect way to handle it. I get that. It, it of course, has since been revised, which I, I really enjoyed the revised version that I saw. But it's still a little problematic just mm-hmm. in terms of figuring out how to bring this particular story to to the stage. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I appreciate that there were big swings made and lots of strong choices, some which worked, some which, some that didn't. But like... More power to you, right? And at the end of the day, I think audiences enjoyed it and like dreams came true. Are you kidding me? Like you made your Broadway debut. All right. (laughs) What an incredible experience overall. Um, I think that I completely skipped Under the Sea. (laughs) Oh, yeah. that That's like right before Poor Unfortunate Souls. Okay, right. And Under the Sea is a, is the song that like won the Academy Award for best song mm. of a of a film. Like it, it really was the bop, and was a huge production number. 
I have to imagine that being in the show, like the the roar of applause after Under the Sea has always got to feel great. You know what? Honestly, not. I know we're talking about Mermaid, but nothing will ever compare to the applause I got doing a musical in Something Rotten. Like, I honestly oh, couldn't even remember course. the applause after Under the Sea in comparison. Um, oh, that's but, interesting. But it's, yeah. I, that's just what I assumed. Yeah, that I'm sure. I'm sure it was it was fun. It was a fun number. Um, this is just probably I was feeling a little different up in that pot. I was probably like, get me down. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Oh my gosh. Chelsea, thank you so much for doing this with me. I I have had a wonderful time thank chatting you. with you. Thank you so much for having me. Congrats on being part of Broadway history and thank you for Aww. lending your experiences and and thoughts on this show that I think will always have a special place in many people's lives because of the history that it has in our childhoods and the Disney canon in general. As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover here on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at a musical podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at a musical podcast for more great content. Take a peek at our T Public store where we have original designs based on some of our favorite moments of podcasts past and present. Chelsea, how do we follow you and keep up to date with everything you're up to? You can follow me on Instagram. Uh, it's at Stock, so C-H-E-L-S-M-S-T-O-C-K. And if anybody wants to try your freshly roasted coffee, oh yes, how do we do that? Um, you can go to our website, which is tectoniccoffee.com, or um, follow us on Instagram. It's tectonic underscore coffee. You can get those links on my, on my Instagram page as well. <laughs> so great to see you. You too. Thank you so much. Stay safe and healthy out there. And everybody, thank you for listening. Stay positive. That sounds gross. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.